0: My point about baseball in Seattle is summarized in one sense. It was never a bad baseball town. It was a town of bad baseball. And that's a big distinction because all it took for the Mariners to get
1: $380 million in public funding for a new stadium was six weeks of good baseball. Zambia has, uh, which is also known for the Victoria Falls and Zambezi River, has something very few other places do, which is the offering of a walking safari.
2: I used to think that if you presented a sound argument and a, a series of facts to people, they'd say, oh, yeah, okay, I was wrong.
3: Yes, I wrote uh, an editorial uh, focusing on um, concerns about the rise of anti-Semitism um, within our community, within within the country, within within the world. And there certainly has been, I think, parallel to a rise in other uh, uh, intolerance
4: and acts uh, and expressions of hatred to other minority groups. That's Teal, followed by George Stone, David Horsey, and then Rabbi Daniel Weiner. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. As we close out 2019 together, I'm going to play what I consider to be the top interviews that I've had with various people this year, and I'll do the same for next week. Again, it's just something to close out 2019. Now today, columnist Art Thiel will talk about the history of baseball in Seattle, George Stone. With National Geographic magazine, we'll talk about the top destinations for travel. Rabbi Daniel Weiner will be addressing the rise of intolerance locally and nationally, directed towards Jewish and other minority groups. And two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist David Horsey will talk about what, if anything, has changed and how people view his work. Back with my interview with Artiel in just a moment.
1: You're
3: listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one
1: word.
4: Art Teal. Former Seattle PI sports columnist, author, and co-founder of SportsPressNorthwest.com is my guest. Art's outstanding sports coverage has been around the Seattle area for decades. During the 1995 baseball season with the Mariners, they were really limping along up through the All-Star break. I think they were like 13 and a half games out of first. But Ken Griffey Jr. got hurt, but he came back in late August and they caught fire and they played like they never had before. They went on to play the Yankees in the American League playoffs. I think those several weeks saved baseball in Seattle. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, yeah, that's a very good possibility that we would not have uh, baseball. But it, I wrote in my book, Out of Left Field, uh, which I published in 2002 about the business success of the Mariners, I point about Baseball in Seattle is summarized in one sentence. It was never a bad baseball town. It was a town of bad baseball. And that's a big distinction because all it took for the Mariners to get $380 million in public funding for a new stadium was six weeks of good baseball. From mid-August of 95, as you mentioned, through September and then one magical playoff series against the Yankees was all it took to turn the fortunes around after they'd been struggling. If they had just invested in baseball, you know, if the ownership, the original ownership uh, that took over in St. in 1977 with Danny Kay and five local businessmen, uh, they ran over their heads financially. They sold to an Orange County businessman by the name of George Argeros in 1981. And he turned out to be a crook far as I was concerned, at least in terms of how he was, you know, lying about how much he was going to do for Seattle. He tried to move the teams. He tried to buy the Padres. Finally, he sold to Jeff Simonian, I think in 1989, another out-of-towner who owned, uh, had a broadcasting fortune based in Indianapolis. Uh, These successions of -of out-of-town owners weren't embraced by the local community, nor did uh, the owners make, an effort to engage. They always seemed to be looking to relocate the team elsewhere. And again, you know, it was a town of bad baseball and people didn't respond because the, the owners didn't invest. And a part of it was the kingdom, even though the kingdom saved the franchise by being an adequate place to play. He was also indoors in a place in the world that I think has the best summers and to watch baseball you had to go indoors and i think that was a big impediment to some people I, I think winning baseball would would have topped that excuse but as long as you weren't successful people could use the good weather outdoors as a as an excuse not to go indoors and so well,
4: I, I couldn't agree prevailed. with you more i couldn't agree with you more on that because i'd be one of those people i'm a baseball fan but there were days I'm going, I'm not going to a game. I'm I just going to be outside because I agree, our summers are wonderful. And it's interesting when you go across the country, when you say you're from Seattle, 99% of the time, it's not like, oh, that's where Microsoft or Starbucks is. Oh, it always rains there. And I'm going, well, no, not it really doesn't. But the perception is that it does. And I think baseball uh, thought the same thing, living on the East Coast or something, the people who made the decisions. And I remember them saying, you have to build a dome stadium if you're going to get a franchise.
0: Well, I think uh, there was a collection of uh, thoughts because, again, this was authorized in 1968. The King Dome was part of a package uh, authorized uh, by voters, King County voters, 1958. And the community leaders Were the ones that decided to make a domed stadium. Um, In part because that's what MLB said, but that's also, it housed housed the uh, NFL Seahawks as well. And so there was a consensus in the community that dovetailed with what the view would have been in Major League and uh, NFL offices at the time, is that Seattle's weather, um, especially if you're going to use it for an expansion football team. In, in November and December, uh, it, you needed to be indoors. And of course, the Houston Astrodome in 1964 was the bell cow for this notion of multi purpose indoor stadiums. And they didn't have to worry about rain down there, they had to worry about heat. Um, but other domes came over the Silver Dome in, in uh, Detroit and the, the Metrodome in Minneapolis and all these indoor. Stadiums with roofs seemed to be very trendy, and the fact was that the Kingdom was a very successful business enterprise because they had more than 200 event dates every year of people occupying the place for um, uh, flat shows such as the car shows, the boat shows, and uh, outdoor sportsman shows and concerts. Uh, it was a it was a very well-utilized public space because it had a nine-acre roof <laughs> keeping the elements out. So
4: a very good point. it
0: was it was a very um, effective space. And the only money losers the kingdom ever had were the Mariners and the Seahawks leases. Uh, they, got, they got sweetheart deals for these uh, pro sports franchises that didn't make the county, the owner of the kingdom, any money. But they they were a big way to attract uh, sports franchises. The national profile that Seattle got from having all these teams. So it was a benefit for the county, but it wasn't necessarily you know uh, uh, black ink operation for uh, King County. But the virtues outweighed the liabilities, that the, the you know the kingdom was very effective but only for 24 years, and uh, then they blew it up because the passion for sports was such that the teams got what they wanted, the Sports specific, two sports-specific stadiums side-by-side side in Soto um, to replace the kingdom, and both of them have been highly successful, even if their starts were controversial.
4: That's Art Teal, co-founder and columnist for SportsPressNorthwest.com. That's SportsPressNW.com. Also, Art wrote a highly acclaimed book about the history of the Seattle Mariners. It's called Out in Left Field. Stone, editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler, is on the line. National Geographic just released a book, 225 Life-Changing Adventures. There are top 10 lists from hiking trails and top wildlife parks throughout the world. Mm, Sorry, Tukwila, you didn't make the cut. Maybe next time. Let's just get right to the interview.
1: The The Pacific Northwest is um, is one of my favorite places in the world, favorite regions. And it's about a sensibility that I see in Seattle, I mean, beyond Seattle, but Aboriginal and Indigenous communities, especially Haida communities up and down the coastal regions that contribute a lot to a visiting experience because it's not just to see a beautiful place, but it's to understand very significant culture that um, has endured for centuries and um, knows and cares for this region and uh, the influence of indigenous peoples in the region, Um, it is a mentality. And there really are a lot of points of contact, you know, about preserving the beauty of the region and preserving what comes from the region, even in things like the cuisine. So Pacific Northwest, I think, is basically just a treasure. And I will always return whenever I can.
4: I was on a safari about 30 years ago. I went to Kruger National Park in South Africa it was life-changing for me. If someone wanted to be like me, something like that, and hadn't been on a safari, where would you suggest the best place to go to go on a safari?
1: I love safaris. And the safaris are all about an immersion in a completely intact ecosystem <laughs> that functions. There are some safari regions that um, are less visited, and uh, Zambia is one. Zambia does not have the crowds of Kenya or Tanzania. Zambia has, uh, which is also known for the Victoria Falls and Zambezi River, has something very few other places do, which is the offering of a walking safari. Most safaris you are driving around in a Land Rover. In Zambia, along with a guide, you can walk on the ground and really experience the scale and the feel of the land. So you're in close contact with it. You can get close to animals. The reason they're not eating you up has to do with the population density of the animals, the, the broad amount of space, but also the fact that they haven't necessarily 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 been terrorized by people all the time. So that, and then also Namibia, uh, Southwest Africa is a desert dune environment where animals have truly adapted in unusual and fascinating ways, desert giraffes and lions, for instance. But mostly that's a place where you're experiencing these towering dunes um, and this strange strange coastline, the Skeleton Coast, with all these barking seals and uh, shipwrecks. And it's a little bit like being on another planet, but it's really terrific.
4: My thanks to George Stone, editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler. Again, the book is published by National Geographic with 225 life-changing adventures. the opportunity to visit with David Horsey, Pulitzer Prize-winning David Horsey, actually two Pulitzer Prizes, for his cartoons that he's been doing for many, many years. I've actually been observing his great work since the 1980s. After a stint with the LA Times, he is back in Seattle, and I visited with him at the Seattle Times offices.
2: I used to think that if you presented a sound argument and a, a series of facts to people, They'd say, oh, yeah, okay, I was wrong. That's true. And <laughs> unfortunately, that is not the case. I mean, that a lot of people, and maybe more of us than we'd like to admit, are much more interested in accepting whatever reinforces our personal biases or, or, or our sense of the world. We're, we're more likely to just go with that than we are to bravely abandon an opinion because the facts prove it wrong. Um, it's made me question my, my job in some ways, or question how to do it, because even within the context of a political cartoon, I'm trying to make an argument based on what I think is sound reasoning or verifiable facts, but I realize it doesn't work, and especially with a cartoon, I think. So it's like, what, am I, what is my job here? So now I just decided to... So you're questioning that now like well, you never have before? Yeah, yeah. And but in, and then I decided, well, I'm not sure I ever swayed anybody anyhow. So I just have to do what I do. Um, you know, I have this huge privilege of being able to put my view of, the, of politics in the world uh, out there, you know, three or four times a week and get paid to do it. And
4: your Cartoons obviously get more play because you can look at it in two seconds, you know exactly what it is, and you're very talented at doing that. But then you accompany it at the times with a column or something like that. Are you as proud of those, or how do you treat that differently and, and how do you approach yeah. that?
2: Well, good question. I because when at the PI, uh, you know, I was doing cartoons four and five times a week and then would occasionally write something. Um, but when I got to the LA Times, I ended up doing a a column with every cartoon. The process is the same. It all starts with there's some, something in the news to, to comment about. And so I, I, I try to gather as much information as I need to form a, what I hope is a smart opinion and then you know decide what I want to say. But then there, there's a big difference between taking that with a column and with a cartoon. With a cartoon, there is this leap um that is the most challenging thing of my job where it's like how do i say what i want to say in an image that people are going to understand how do i whittle this down into the essence of what the issue is and so that, that it's that's always the stopping point it's like until i come up with that idea i cannot go further with a column i found it actually much easier it's like i know what i want to say i think of the first sentence and it just it goes um and the more I did it, the better I was at that. It's the column that gets in. I would have thought often. opposite. Yeah, me too. That's interesting. But it was just, yeah.
4: Well, I want to talk to you about the fairness doctrine a little bit, just how we yeah. get to where we are now. Right. And then as soon as they pulled that back, Rush Limbaugh started. And then right. you know all that started going. And now, of course, we have, what's his name? Alex Jones, just to the right. absolute right. over here. And I'm sure there's going to be something even worse than Alex Jones. I feel a lot of the situation we're in now started with that. What do you think? No, I
2: think that's exactly right. Unfortunately kind of only by a few years preceded the technological revolution of the yeah. internet. Um, but yeah, it, it I think that's what created Rush Limbaugh Talk Radio was born. And for whatever reason, it's worked a lot better for conservatives than for liberals. Apparently liberals don't listen to the radio or or they already have NPR. I, Hesitate to even talk about it as conservative opinion. It's really right wing crazy stuff. Uh, you know, I, I really respect real conser- people. I consider real conservatives like George Will.
4: And I almost think like Rush Limbaugh. You know, would have been a liberal if he could have made millions of dollars. Oh yeah. I don't think he cares yeah. because when he got in trouble, I watched him was on CBS Sunday Morning. It was like, I'm just an entertainer. People right. shouldn't believe me. Yeah. I'm just doing this. You know, he falls back on that when he yeah. gets into trouble. And if I'm a person who's listening to him regularly, I'd be insulted by that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, these guys are buffoons is what he's saying. They're right. listening to what I'm saying. I'm just doing this for fun. Yeah.
2: No, I, I totally agree. And and we still might have been okay, but I think the internet just suddenly it, it created a... Huge megaphone for the craziest people in the country, and they could find each other. You know, I think they were—they've always been there. But you know, all these—I imagine them—you know, these sort of oddballs in their basement, in their underwear, you know, typing on <laughs> keyboards, sending out horrible right. messages. But they used to all be alone. But now they are they they have kind of been—they've become a. They're not mainstream, but they have become a big stream.
4: That's two-time Pulitzer Prize winner cartoonist David Horsey. You can see David Horsey's cartoons in the Seattle Times. Rabbi Daniel Weiner addressed the Seattle Rotary Club, number four, and I thought I would play some of his remarks during the question and answer session. Rabbi Weiner is much more than just a practicing rabbi in Seattle, but he's a civic and national activist for gun responsibility. A question was asked about a recent editorial he wrote for the Seattle Times.
3: Yes, I wrote uh, an editorial uh, focusing on um, concerns about the rise of anti-Semitism um, within our community, within within the country, within within the world. And there certainly has been, I think, parallel to a rise in other uh, uh, intolerance and acts uh, and expressions of hatred to other minority groups. There has been a market rise um, within the Jewish uh, communal experience. And um, my op-ed really was a response to a previous op-ed um, that really was... Uh, what I sought to do was to... Um, reaffirmed that uh, anti-Semitism is alive and well and is thriving both on the extreme political right and the extreme political left. And it was really an affirmation of what, in my experience, uh uh the, the mayor durkin and the seattle police department have done to be incredibly responsive and supportive of the wider jewish community and that just as is the case with all for all um instances of intolerance and hate not every single one is going to get a press release not every single one is going to be responded to uh equally as a matter of fact to do so would um diminish the impact of that response um but we have to look at the totality of someone's actions. And I feel um, incredibly grateful and uh, um, supported by the mayor and the Seattle Police Department when it has come to instances of anti-Semitism and wider uh, anti-Semitic events that um, shed the light on potential threat on the Jewish community like the October 2018 Pittsburgh Massacre. So here's the bottom line. Um, even though there is this incredible pride in what we all uh, celebrate as a part of our identity, as individuals and as a people, there is a way to balance that, that individual pride with the larger ideals we share, such as celebrating the power of the light in our lives, uh, illuminating our minds, our hearts, and our world. There's the light of the Hanukkah candles, the light of the Kwanzaa uh, candelabrum, and In the book of John, Jesus is called the light and the way. I think that that it's not an accident that Jesus is associated with light in its many forms. Um, This time of year for all of us is also a set time to remember our better angels and aspire to live out our finest values all year round. You know, it's always very difficult to to extend the inspiration we feel in our uh, uh, better moments. Uh, to extend it throughout the year. Um, And it's an affirmation of the balance between a commitment to our beliefs and respect of those of others, particularly a passion for our values, the ways in which a passion for our values should amplify an appreciation of the passion invested by others. And for me, a kind of iconic experience with that is, um, first of all, as a rabbi, I love this time of year because it's the only holiday I don't have to work. It's wonderful. I love Christmas, love Christmas Um, but one of my family traditions used to be, I grew up in San Francisco was to go to Gump's, which doesn't exist anymore, but Gump's had in Union Square in San Francisco these incredible, and I'm sure people have, have this in New York obviously, but in San Francisco have these incredible Christmas windows and quite frankly, you know, while so many Christians were at home celebrating as they should, although these days when you go on Christmas Eve, there are more uh, there are more Christians at uh, Chinese restaurants and movies than there should be. That used to be our province as Jews. That's changed unfortunately. I, I stay home, you know, I celebrate Rosh Hashanah in the synagogue. You know, leave the movie theaters for us on Christmas Eve. But at Gums, there was this incredible, incredible uh, experience seeing the windows, and it was a wonderful way to enjoy the spirit of the season as a Jew without feeling like I had to and my family had to give in to the larger culture. We could experience the joy and the warmth of the celebration, but at the same time, understand that that what we experience as American Jews is different and distinct, though in many ways, the larger values are shared with all.
4: That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to David Horsey, Rabbi Daniel Weiner, Art Thiel, and George Stone for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Quote of the week. I like this one. Hindsight is everyone's favorite perspective. And that's Frenchman Andy Benoit. Last week, I had the opportunity to go to the Rose Bowl and see the unveiling of the Keith Jackson statue. So the next time you're in Pasadena and you have the time, go to the Rose Bowl grounds and take a look at Keith Jackson's statue. It is very well done and is very fitting for the legend that he was. Congratulations to outgoing Husky football coach Chris Peterson. Um, I say this, and I'm a rabid Washington State Cougar fan. But I've always felt that Chris Peterson handled his job with class and dignity and just actually did a pretty darn good job. And congratulations again on a great career as a coach and uh, for the win over his former coaching position, Boise State. Reminded that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. You can also listen to all previous shows by Googling KKNW. And then click on to podcast, locate Voices of Experience, and you're there. Have a great Christmas Eve and day and rest of the week. And uh, enjoy yourself, whatever denomination that you belong to.